Welcome to Creating a Buzz About Health podcast with Paula Carnell. Hello, hello, hello. So welcome to this very exciting episode of my podcast. We're creating a buzz about health today with the wonderful Natasha, who's come um, live or, or she's on here today from South Africa. And we've known each other for a number of years it's got to that point where I feel that we're such sort of soul B sisters that I can't even remember how we got to know each other or what happened. But whenever we see each other and we're lucky enough to actually meet in person, it just feels like we're always together and always know each other. And thanks to technology and WhatsApp, we often are chatting. So, so Natasha, welcome, welcome, welcome. And tell everyone who you are and where you are and what you do. Thank you, Paula. It's wonderful to have this invitation. It's a real privilege to be here and chat to you. So I'm coming to you, I'm not quite live, but <laughs> from South Africa. Um, I'm originally from Cape Town. I reside in Johannesburg just now. And um, yes, uh, my journey with bees and, and honey started probably about now, coming up to five, five and a half, half years ago. And uh, the bees moved into our irrigation box, as they do in South Africa, because honeybees is native to South Africa and to Africa. And uh, beekeeper Andrew um, had them relocated. We had them relocated one evening. And when I held up this piece of uh, virgin honeycomb, in fact, I've never seen, I didn't realize virgin honeycomb is that white. And I remember holding it up to the kitchen light and, I was just blown away, blown away. And I had so many questions. I couldn't understand, I couldn't understand how such a fragile, you know, piece of, of wax that's so light can hold a commodity that is so heavy. And mm. and just the pure perfection. And, and that's sort of where it started with a whole lot of questions. And I needed to know how do they do this? <laughs> so that started your journey then. And boy, you've come on so far I mean you really are an expert in South Africa now I mean people really come to you for knowledge and you've really taken on the honey but plus you've used your past experience so do you want to share a bit about what you did before and how everything is coming together or brought together by the bees yes it's amazing Paul and I think that's where we you know really connected with that because at the time, when you know, it's the most powerful thing when you just follow that little voice inside you. Um, a couple of years ago, probably about three years ago, I attended um, this inner wisdom course um, of, of fe feminine wisdom. And all these uh, little voices, the, the sort of direction that I felt from the beginning, from that evening, you know, you, you've got all these ideas and you think, oh, but how's that going to work? You know, oh, but I know nothing about bees. And I kept every time, you know, that feeling just became stronger and stronger. And for me, when I started reading about uh, about bees and, and about honey, I then started connecting with, with, with amazing experts in South Africa. And really, I must give them credit because today, and I'm sure you can you can share or, or um, um, connect with, with this we, we stand on other people's shoulders, you know, but then if you stay curious and you keep following that truth, it, it leads you to, um, yeah, to amazing learning paths. So I quite early on started uh, with my reading, I realized that 
the honeys that we see in the commercial, um, you know, and retailers, etc., is nothing like the honeys that that I then witnessed being extracted, the different colors, the flavors, the aromas. I couldn't understand that. I couldn't understand what we, the customers are, uh, what we've been shown and um, sort of um, advertised, you know, this unifloral, uniform color. um, And at the actual apiaries, when I had the privilege to work with all these different beekeepers, it, it couldn't be further from what I saw on the shelves. But something else that struck me is I I realized that there is such a need to bridge the gap between what uh, all this information and often the research um, is done by scientists and entomologists and, you know, very much a scientific world. And these papers and outcomes or the papers are published in in scientific journals. But to transfer that to, you know, to the end user, to the public Mr. Public in in the street to connect with this product and to understand um, how all of this fits in the total, you know, unity of of the superorganism of the hive and us being connected with nature. I just felt that there was a, a vehicle that 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 was missing. There was a missing link between all this research and what the public is experiencing. Mm. Um, yes, my my interest started with with honey. Uh, my background is marketing and branding. And um, I then in South Africa, we, we have got really a lot of social, social um, economic challenges, um, you know, from electricity and a whole lot of uh, challenges that, that everyday South Africans are just trying to work through. So to try and elevate, for instance, something I'm really passionate about, it's probably my true north, is I use the vehicle of honey and bee education um, to to spread a further message of of conservation, um, but when you're trying to break through the clutter of so many other messages, or you're competing for so many other or, uh, among so many audiences, then you need something creative. You need something that people can relate to. Um, so so that's how I started then with the honey tastings, and um, yeah, I started Lion Raw Honey Artists and Honey, and that's what we do, tastings and. Um, just connecting with yeah with public and sharing this phenomenal, amazing, precious commodity made entirely by bees. It's amazing, isn't it? But I do know, and you'll recognise this as well, that although honey is made by the bees, you can there is a skill needed by the beekeeper when the beekeeper has this relationship with the bees but also with the plants you know anybody could just take all the honey at the end of the year and you're just going to have a mishmash of of whatever the bees have foraged on all year but you've got this real passion about specific floral varieties in South Africa and nobody else is really looking at these you know you might get the obvious where the the bees have been out on a monoculture or pollinating so you might have you know certain nuts or or fruit but you've got these amazing floral honeys and the way you package them and the way you display them and the way you help people to go through this journey of tasting honeys when as you said they're used to just seeing a runny or a set honey in you know in the supermarket or in parts of africa you're just going to have really wild honey which is thick and dark and with comb and brood and all kinds of things in it so you're you really are elevating honey but also alerting people to the plants so can you share a bit more about you know what 
what your bees forage on? Yes, so um, absolutely, Paul. I think one of the one of the phenomenal things about or blessings we've got in South Africa, you know, we've got uh, approximately nine different biomes, um, from from desert to forest to beautiful coastlines, and then of course we've got this very special floral region um, called Fynbos, which is uh, translated as fine bush. Uh, which you you don't find anywhere else in the world. So the botany in in South Africa is very very diverse, and um, so in order to try and uh, isolate a certain flavor or aroma profile or nectars from a specific plant is often quite difficult. So the the majority of our honeys would 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 be multifloras, but. In that instance, you can find a multiflora which is specific to a geographic area. So what, what I'm trying to, to do with identifying the honeys in South Africa is to try and understand a tasting and an aroma profile from specific ge geographical areas because it's so difficult to isolate specific nectars. But having said so, I mean, we've got some of the most amazing, um, you know, fruit and, and vegetable export markets, especially from Western Cape. So we do have pollination honeys, you know, canola and sunflower. And you and I have often spoken about this macadamia, all these uh, citrus, um, uh, what's the other one? Oh, we've got lychees and then, of course, your apples and carrots and, you know, so... The downside, of course, with 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 your uh, large scale um, pollinating honeys is the quality is arguably not the same as it would be for when the bees have got natural foraging. And I think that's really um, very important for consumers to understand. Having said so, you know, a, a lot of the our agricultural sector, there's a large um, a part percentage of of our farmers that are quite conscious about you know, the uh, large-scale farming with pesticides and all these challenges and the, the risks that they pose, not only to the bees, but to us, um, us, us as humans. So those honeys, I like to, I, I do keep them in my collection because it is wonderful to showcase, you know, all these different textures and colors. But for me, those are not premium honeys. Um, I do, for instance, have an orange blossom that we get from an orange blossom farmer which um, he, he farms just for juices. So he's, um, you know, pest control, um, you know, um, program is very, very limited to, he, he only sprays when he absolutely have to. He works really um, closely together with our beekeepers there. They've got a longstanding relationship from, of over 30 years. So that's the only farm I will, I will get orange blossom honey from as, as an example. But yeah, South Africa is, We've got some of the most phenomenal honeys, um, you know, further north in Africa and Zambia. And I think in the UK, Zambian honeys you can find in the UK and throughout Europe. It's a very dark, as you've just said, dark, rich honey. Uh, we've got so many different acacia species, which is quite different to the European acacia, which is the false rubinia tree and mus, mus, uh, the locust tree, right? You know, it as, a, as a black locust, beautiful honey sought after. Um, so our we we've got obviously some black locust um, here and there, but our acacia is a very different um, acacia. We've got many different species, and then in, of course eucalyptus as well. We've got around two hundred eucalyptus species in South Africa, but it's not native to South Africa. Um, yeah. It's obviously from Australia, but yes. So for me, the magic lies in that to to discover 
it's almost like you are experiencing that landscape, the weather, even the micronutrients, uh, the minerals in the soil, as you know, yeah, contributes to the color. And and when we talk about honeys, people are blown away um, yeah. about the, you know how a honey every single harvest is like a DNA, like a fingerprint. You you will never have two harvests that's exactly the same. And I think because we've got such an incredible variety of botany. Our, our honeys is mind-blowing complex, and most of them are unifloral. Mm. <laughs> multifloral, multifloral, oh. not unifloral. Yeah, no, it's, it is amazing. So you've also got different bees to the ones we have in the UK, and many people listening will just think, well, a honeybee is a honeybee, or don't all bees make honey? And I've talked about that on other episodes, but in South Africa, you have got very different bees. Um, you have Apis capensis and Apis sculata. I believe that Apis mellifera, which is the one we're used to up here in um, Northern Europe, I think they have tried to have Apis mellifera down in South Africa, but they've they've not done well. So you have got your native bees. So which ones do you work with? And you know, and tell us a bit about them and why they're different to our bees. I mean, you know, anyone watching horror films or going back to the 70s or 80s will remember the Africanized bees. And, you know, we think of them being very aggressive. So, yeah, talk to us a bit about that, because if you've got bees in your garden and they're Africanized bees, you know, wow, do you have to have your windows shut all the time or how does that work? <laughs> yes, that's a very good question, Paula. I think the first thing to to understand is that, like you've said, um, uh, the bees are native to Africa, right? So we have got two subspecies, a a Apis mellifera scutellata and Apis mellifera capensis. So they are two sub subspecies. And because I, I think the second key thing that 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 is very different to Europe is our bees naturally swarm. So for instance, in 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 Europe, I think most of the bees are. Um, I won't say domesticated, but most of them are housed in, in hives managed by beekeepers or pollinators, where mm -hmm. in Africa and South Africa, we've got such a, a, um, a large wild population. So, for instance, if you could put a, if you would put a catch box out in our swarming season, you can easily catch, you know, 12, 14, 15 swarms in an area if there is enough foraging, etc. So like with any wild animal, as soon as you have got a population that is wild, they really thrive. They thrive on the African continent. They, they, they have adapted. I mean, there is research that um, is, is arguing that, that your scutellata actually have even done migrations you know, um, where, where hives have been put up in Kruger Park and they've been empty for months. And all of a sudden, these catch boxes and I, all of them were occupied for a couple of weeks, a couple of months. Uh, I've, I forget exactly um, how long it was one of our bee biologists that shared this story. He, he did the research program in Kruger National Park. And um, after a while, they all absconded. And wow. and so the the only argument you know the only possible explanation is that they are possibly migrating, so there are so much that we don't know. But I think our um, our bee population is um, it, it can can really multiply by itself, and they have got this 
ability to 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 do swarming or to swarm so the old queen will you know break away and pretty much what's happening with with your project that you've done um at the newt which is wonderful where you've started with a few hives and naturally they've built up swarms so this is a natural ph phenomenon throughout south africa and and africa and i think because they are wild bees they're far more defensive um hans was telling me the other day as one of my mentors he went fishing at the orange river absolutely loves fishing and um they were sort of on the riverbed and he and he on their way back they looked he looked up to one you know sort of area where they were climbing up the rocks and sure enough there were six hives there on stands and of course as a beekeeper he went and he, he went and had a look and he couldn't even come near the hives they were super, super defensive. And that was specifically, you know, related to it was a dearth period, very little foraging around. And like any wild animal, you know, if you have if your food is threatened or your brood is threatened, um, you are going to be super defensive. So unfortunately, yes, they've earned this reputation to be aggressive, but we like to think of it as as um, defensive. And the other thing I think which is really worth um, noting is that our because of the diversity of, for instance, our drone, the, you know, the genetic diversification of the drones, they get to mate naturally with with wild swarm drones. So your process of natural selection is so much stronger, um, you know, with without human interference, and that is one of the reasons it's believed that our bees manages or, or can can really cope with varroa mites so well. I mean, if we've got a strong, healthy swarm, they've got varroa mite, but they sort them. You know, they don't succumb. But if you've got, obviously, if you've got, um, you know, hundreds of hives that you're moving around for pollination and they only have got one foraging, the immune system is compromised, they perhaps they're exposed to contaminants, then yes, the varroa mite will get the better of them. But a mm. healthy, big swarm, they, they manage varroa mite. And, and we believe... The diversification from this wild, these wild swarms definitely is. There's a link there. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And I think that as we both know, the bees know best. And if they're, you know, if they know that it's time to have a brood break, which obviously does affect um, the varroa breeding cycle, then that does help. And putting anything into confined spaces or restricting the natural inclination to swarm, it's going to have an effect, isn't it? And putting lots of bees all together, you know, it's it is that factory farming sort of idea, isn't it? Absolutely, you know. And I've I've recently just attended um, South Africa hosted the twelfth International Pollinator Symposium, um, Symposium, and you know, from one one golden thread that is indisputable is all the research shows and confirms what many many people have known for years. You know, it's all about diversity. And um, of the 22,000 bee species, South Africa is home to approximately 1,300 bee species. Um, yes, exactly. So if we can, you know, plant for all pollinators and there, there's a big, um, you know, there, there, there's a big debate going on in South Africa where we have got such a strong agricultural sector, which we depended upon. But the bees, especially in the Western Cape, just do not have enough foraging um, mm -hmm. for, you know, to, to make this, you know, to strengthen the swarms and, and build them up to go from 
pollination job to the next pollination job, it's just not sustainable. And then the other the other concern is, well, what's the impact on, on our wild swarms? Mm-hmm. Um, like anything, you know, the, the balance is out. So, yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> there's so much more to learn. There is, you know, these creatures have been around, what, over 100, 100 million years. Yeah, um, so we've seen some changes. I mean, where the, so where, I mean, from England, we'd look at South Africa as being sunny and that you've got loads of plants and lots of wild areas. Now, here in the UK, we've lost all our wild flower meadows. So 98% of our wild flower meadows, which were feeding all of our bees, you know, the native bees as well as the honeybees. So in South Africa, what's changed? I know you've got more intensive agriculture, but what's been removed? What is the agriculture replacing that's so affecting the bees? I, I think, um, you know, if on, on a larger scale, Paula, I, I must just say this is this is not purely my opinion, right? It's not at all researched and I, I can't give you accurate facts, but certainly as everywhere else in the world, we are seeing areas that's exposed to very different um, seasonal um, patterns. You know, we, we so, so there are areas and pockets throughout South Africa where, where we should have a harvest, where we normally do have a harvest, there's nothing, um, you know, and, and definitely so the climate change have got a big impact um, on on the bees and um, and we can see it in the harvest or the lack of the harvest that comes through. Sometimes you've got a bumper harvest in a time of year that is so unusual. Um, but I, I think these areas, you know, like in the in the Knashflakta, in, in the Karua, um, you know, those odd, odd semi-desert and semi-arid desert areas, they historically have always been um, a lot less um, foraging for the bees. So there's certain areas in South Africa where perhaps you'll only get one honey harvest. Mm. And that's why it's so important, as you know, to, to really read and know your botanical footprint um, so that you, you can know exactly how much honey is gifted to you by the, by the bees you know mm-hmm. um yeah so i i it's difficult to answer that because without facts i mean south africa is so big <laughs> i yes. you know it's it's a couple of hours to fly like from Joburg to cape town or um and i haven't been all around the country yet um mm-hmm. to inspect all these different apiaries but certainly we we see we definitely see the impact of climate change so what about the fine boss? Um, so that's really just in the Cape area, isn't it, of South Africa? And the bees have adapted to live with that forage, haven't they? So can you talk to us a bit about um, the Apis capensis? You know, how are those bees different? Yes, yeah, so so the Apis, uh, Apis mellifera, the capensis bees have evolved um, specifically in relation to the fine boss botanical footprint, which is stretched across the Western Cape and the uh, Western Cape, a bit of the Eastern Cape. Um, and they have evolved together with this fl- floral kingdom, basically. Um, it is such a, such a diverse, um, like, like the heather, the heath that you get in, in the UK, some of the species is, you know, sort of um, very similar to that. I, I don't know if, if you know how the genetics uh, genetically, but they they definitely have got similarities. Even in some of the honeys, um, you, mm. you can take that you know sort of 
um, aromatic and herbal and, and all these different flavors and aromas. But the, the bees, what, what's quite interesting about our um, feinbos, a lot of the feinbos species, if I can think of proteas and ericas, um, a, a lot of our different species actually uh, depends on fire in order to survive. So, for instance, um, some of the seeds will, will only... Um, you know, will only germinate after a fire. And if there's rain at a certain time, um, you know, time frame after we've had the fire and a certain amount of rain, that little seed will germinate because it needs wow. the heat from the soil. And if that seed is a little bit deeper than what it's supposed to, to be, it, it won't germinate. And then you've got all these pollinators. You've got rodents and and ants that would carry and disperse these little seeds all through their tunnels, and it will sit there for years. But some of these um, plants are dependent on fire. And so the honeybee, your wild swarms, you can imagine if there, if there is a fire, and let's say the whole swarm succumb to this fire, they have evolved this unique ability to, instead of being haploid, they are diploid. So they can um, raise female eggs without mating. So wow. it it is a it is um, an incredible ability and one of the reasons the capensis is 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 the most studied subspecies honeybee. So they are spread. Um, the the capensis is found specifically where feinbos is found, um, and the capensis happens to be also our largest pollinator um, in in the Western Cape. And these swarms are continuously built up. And, you know, South Africa haven't really been involved in big commercial queen breeding projects. I mean, we've been doing it for, you know, pockets of people have been doing it for, for a number of years. But of late, it's really taken off um, to try and build up these swarms to meet uh, pollination requirements. But the feinbos is very delicate. It's, it's, there's only so much of it. And some of those plants, like the Erica plants, actually has got very little nectar. Um, you know, so the feinbos cannot sustain the numbers of the capensis bees that we have in the Western Cape. It's just not enough food. But they have evolved very specifically to to you know, within the capensis. And we've actually got a region across South Africa because of their ability, this diploid ability, if they get into the scutellata area, then they can really, you know, take take over the whole colony. They will keep, you know, laying eggs and uh, eradicate the scutellata. So we are legally not allowed to transfer the scutellata into a capensis area or the capensis be into the scutellata area. Wow. And so naturally, I mean, without people moving, do the bees keep separate or is there a geographical barrier? Yes, there, there is more or less a ge we, we refer to it now as um, there's an integration. I think they call it, I just want to make sure that I, I name it correctly. But there is, um, it's actually all, all, all in our book. We've done a, a map of South Africa and there's an integration area where they definitely has been uh, integration between um, the scutellata and the capensis. The capensis, I mean, the size of the bees, the scutellata and capensis, the size of the bee, you know, or if you look at her, she looks very similar, but the capensis is is darker. And then, of course, this ability. So they, they have evolved um, this, you know, with nature, um, this ability to quickly lay the eggs and expand 
you know, rapidly expand a hive or a swarm so that they can take advantage of a nectar flow before that nectar is lost. And that is what's driven this evolutionary sort of development in the capensis that makes them very unique. I don't think there's any other subspecies of honeybees that's got that ability. No, I don't think there is. Now, you mentioned your book. So your book is looking amazing. I can't wait to see a physical copy, but seeing the photographs and and talking to you as you were putting it together. And I mean, it's been a real passion project, hasn't it? So tell us a bit about your book. Yes, absolutely, Paula. I, I really must give so much credit to the photographer, Sharon Krause. She, um, again, it started sort of organically. We, <laughs> our daughters um, did ice skating together and every weekend next to the ice skating rink, I will tell her about, you know, what I've done that week with the bees and I've read this and she was incredible. I mean, I used for a whole hour, I would just talk bees and honey. And then one day she said to me, um, would you like me to come and take a photo? You know, some photos of the bees. And I said, yes, I'd love to, because by that point in, you know, by that time I already started a honey club and I thought that would be fantastic. And so Sharon came and I tell you, Paula, it was quite it was nearly a disaster because, I mean, I was so green, I had no idea. So I had a frame of honey, which um, uh, my mentor Hans had given me, and we got cheese and figs, and we were going to do this whole photo shoot. We put the frame down, and we waited, and we waited, and it was sort of sort of just before swarming season, August, September swarming season. And sure enough, eventually a little bee came and, and landed, and we took some photos and then another couple of bees. Well, the next, of course, I had no idea. She's going off to do the waggle dance to go and tell the other 50,000 sisters. And um, Rick was on his way to work and, and he came to say goodbye. And it was just bees everywhere. And he took one look and he said, okay, girls, I'm out of here. I don't know what you're up to, but I'm out of here. And we got some beautiful shots. And in fact, one of those one of those photos is right in the beginning of the book. So she just started taking these photos and she, her husband bought a, another lens. And her photos, Paula, was just, they just became better and better. And one day I said to her, I said, Sharon, people need to see these photos. They are absolutely extraordinary. How about we put them in a photo book? But so initially we just had an idea of a photo book, like you would do for a family, you know, photo book. And yes, and it just evolved from there. Um, So the photos that Sharon selected for the book is over, she's taken over 12,000 photos. (gasps) And she selected over the past five years these photos. And we've included a little honey section. But the heart of the book, what we try to do is, Everybody connects with the honeybee, right? So everybody knows the honeybee. And we use the theme of the honeybee to open a window of her world to humans, you know, mm-hmm. to say, step into her world and come and see what she encounters on her foraging flight. So we've got a little section that covers uh, bee predators and we go through the bee anatomy, but it's all done from a visual. It's a photographic art book, Um Yes, and then one day she said to me, she's, um, can I write a f- on every page just a little something about every photo? First of all, English is my second language, and really I, I didn't think I had the time. So I declined. I said, I'm sure you could do it, Sharon. <laughs> and so she started, and then, you know, she said, Tash, please, will you? And I just, yeah, I started, and it was 
in sane Paula because the more you research, the more you learn. And so uh, just to end off quickly, for me, the key things were, number one, it had to really be interesting. It had mm-hmm. to relate to a photo, but no one's going to read a photographic book from page one to page 160, right? You may be at the doctor's room or in South Africa, we've got all these beautiful wildlife lodges. We want our book to sit there proudly next to a photographic book of the big five. So there's nothing like it in South Africa about bees that is a 30 by 30, you know, coffee coffee table book. Mm. But also it had to, it, it really had to share something that, that the reader didn't know, but at the same time, leave them in awe. You know, so, for instance, every single, when we spoke about the antennae or the honey tummy or the wings or every little thing, I mean, we talk about the, do bees, you know, where does the bee, do bees have knees, you know? Yeah. Where does the thing come about bees' knees? So we tried to keep it interesting, um, and but it was it was next level insane. I, I'm not sure I would do this <laughs> Again, quickly. Um, but yeah, it's 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 something we are really proud of, and at the heart of it is is our message, um, you know, to to Mr. Public, just to show this the beauty, and to appeal to every single person to think how we're engaging with nature. You know, that we're part of nature, to yeah. try and stop controlling her and rather flow with her. I mean, our mental health, our energy our connectivity on a subconscious level, we need nature. We, we don't think, we, we're not consciously aware of how much we need nature, um, but we, we really do need nature. Yeah, so this, this book is supposed to be a window, stepping stone into reconnecting with the bees. And I think just about any beekeeper will just love this book through the winter months when we can't watch our bees and we can't see them. And just to look at these beautiful photographs and just remember, you know, how special they are and how lucky, how honoured we are to be able to look into their worlds. You know, it's just... Absolutely. No, absolutely. You know, so in South Africa, we do see our bees every day. How lucky are we? In the winter, oh. they may just forage. Yes, <laughs> they may go out a bit later, you know, like 11 or depending on the weather. Um, I can't imagine not seeing my bees, to be honest. It's really quite stressful, actually, because you just I mean, yesterday I did a bee safari and the temperatures really dropped here now. And there'd been a lot of rain and then the sun came out. So the sun was out and I thought, oh, we might see the odd bumblebee queen or we might see some honeybees foraging. And there's a big sweep of rosemary at the newt where we do the safaris. And quite often in winter, if it's a sunny day, you'll see some bees there. And there weren't even any bees there. And. It, it was just really sad, you know, you just think, oh, and then looking at the hives, you know, we've got the log hives and the tree hives, yes. and you literally have to stand there for 10 minutes and you might see one bee, you know, they'll just, they'll be the odd one will come out and just cleanse, you know, on a cleansing flight and go back in. So it's quite difficult because you have a lot of hives that you could look at right, you know, from weeks or months not seeing any bees and you just don't know what's going on in there and you can't open them because it's too cold or it's wet so it is quite a stressful time but it's also quite liberating because suddenly you have more hours in a day although it's dark but you know in the summer it's just there's so much to do it's all compressed into this sort of four or five months and now now it's doing all the admin it's catching up it's that 
like the bee, like our bees in torpor, you know, dreaming of what we're going to do for the next season. So, yeah, I, I do miss them. But I've been weaving a sun hive at the moment. So I'm standing outside in the sunshine and um, very well wrapped up and just weaving. But oh, wonderful. We really want to get, um, in fact, we've got so much of this long grass. You know, we've got lots of thatches. Um, oh. Yes, we, we really should get into that. Um, I'd love a sun hive and, and skip hives, etc. We've got some very, very talented people that I'm sure can. And I'm sure, that, I mean, they are still used, you know, the, the skip hives and forms and log hives and that in Africa still still used, yeah. Yeah, it's just having that time. But if your bees are busy all year round, you don't have that downtime where you can sit and weave, weave skeps. Now, we were really lucky that you came over to the UK um, for Chelsea Flower Show. So we were both there um, supporting the newt with the bee garden and with the, the Byzantium, the, the giant beehive, but with um, some of the interiors from the Byzantium that we have at the newt. And we were chatting earlier about the the golden threads or the threads that went through all the gardens this year. And, you know, we know that gardens should have lots of bees and Chelsea Flower Show has been known for years of being very formal gardens. And last year I noticed there are a few more wild areas and actually the, the winning garden was um, about um, reintroducing beavers. So it was sort of a reconstructed um, beaver stream. And this year, you know, it was, there was, you know, as you were saying, there were two common threads. So, you know, share with us, what did you really pick up on, you know, looking at it from a different continent and seeing British gardens? What did you see? Yes, no, it, it was fascinating. It was, an, uh, it was such a highlight for me this year. I loved every minute. Um, and, and I think definitely what stood out was, it, there's so much more meaning and thought into how we create these gardens. Um, and, you know, I, I, I mean, obviously I read a bit about the changes in that, that that's been um, happening over the past years because South Africa used to enter, um, you know, into the flower, uh, Chelsea Flower Show for many years um, under, the, under um, one of the guys, uh, Leon Kluger, he's an international landscape um, designer and Leon and his team um, went uh, quite a few years so in, in South Africa the the flower Chelsea show is quite well known um, unfortunately the government's no longer you know giving the funds so we we can no longer participate but certainly it was this beautifully manicured it was all about the beauty and now what warmed my heart is is there is an absolute a fundamental shift, and I think it's perhaps been fast tracked by COVID. Certainly, um, COVID have the whole world. We we've had to rethink, um, you know, what what does health mean? Um, what does it mean to be healthy? And how do we how do we engage in healthy relationships with ourselves, with others, but also with our environment? And it definitely was something that stood out. There were so many gardens that that literally would look at it and it just looks like a patch of field have just been put down there. You know, I love that. Um, and even the Newt's garden, I mean, how much thought have gone into that and how that garden changed from Monday mm -hmm. to Friday. It was just beautifully planned, but yet it looked as if it organically and naturally just, you know, flowed. And so what I definitely taken out from that is that 
uh, that that integration um that that we are part of our environment and it was definitely um, very noticeable at at the Chelsea Flower Show was that link to our health and how we and it's about diversity planting for all pollinators and what that means and I think also something else I noticed is you know with with these beautiful gardens all these lovely colored flowers and um, you know brought by by the nurseries and every year there's something new but it cannot just be that now. There has to be uh, emphasis and thought put into, well, does this also feed the environment? Is, mm -hmm. is this good for the, micro, you know, for the microbiomes and the soil? And how does this plant complement that plant? And then to look at indigenous plants, what, you know, what is growing in your area? Um, yes, so I, for, for me, the, that golden thread. And then the secondly was, was that connection about mental health. I think it's huge, Paula. Um, I think it's such an important, uh, you know, I think every single person battle with some kind of element of feeling lonely or not being sure, or you, or you go through a, a massive challenge in your life. And, and I think gardens have got the power to really heal. I feel very passionate about that. And, and with my future going forward, it's something I want to focus on a lot more, um, especially for corporates, you know, to create spaces like the NHS did, you know, with, with I mean, they, they did this research where patients just fast-tracked their healing. They felt better. They felt happier um, with these beautiful gardens. I, I forget exactly where, but I think at Chelsea Wright and some other hospitals in the UK, um, for me, this needs to be almost a have to. Every single corporate needs to have herbs in, in you know, in planters, in and around the offices, on the roof, um, have gardens outside where employees can go and sit and reconnect. Every single corporate and company, I, I really should look at that. It's part of the social responsibility. I'd like to make oh. that law. <laughs> <laughs> Natasha's law. That would be wonderful. I mean, there's um, Horatio's gardens. They had uh, an amazing garden and um, they that's a spinal unit and they've got units all over Britain and they have these incredible gardens. And, you know, I know people who've stayed in these hospitals, you know, through a really tragic time in their lives. I mean, it's horrific to have a spinal injury and to, as you said, to have that healing, to have, to feel comforted by nature and it forces you to be present. There's aspects of a garden that you can just stare at um, I do remember uh, many, many years ago, I had a miscarriage that was, um, you know, not not nice at all. And I was at home in bed and I was sent a bouquet of flowers. And I remember spending oh, at least seven hours staring at these flowers. You know, I was like a zombie. I was really, you know, distraught. I was in pain. I was just you know complete a complete mess and this bouquet of flowers arrived they're by the bed and I was looking at them and I remember saying at the end of the day the carnations are so sympathetic I just felt that they were just going oh oh you know I just could feel them doing it and this is you know this is 25 years ago and 
you know whenever I did mention it to people they're like oh okay yeah you were ill and <laughs> now as I know more about nature it's like yeah they were sympathetic and if you think about it we've always had this culture when people are sick we give them a bit of nature be it food or flowers or both you know a bunch of flowers and a bunch of grapes you know because nature does heal and I think perhaps the bees by connecting with bees it gets you back out into nature. It gets you back into the gardens and you start to see what the bees are feeding from and then realising, I mean, I can no longer pick flowers because I don't want to take them away from the bees. You know, I always used to have flowers in my house and now I don't want to pick flowers and have them in the house because it's like, oh, I'm taking somebody's food away. So, you know, the bees change you, but nature changes you as well. And together just this incredible healing so you were talking about your true north and you're talking about your passions what um I mean I know that you have a long life ahead of you but when you're laying on your deathbed after having had a really complete life what would you love to be proud of that you've done what would you like to say to your your family, your great-grandchildren, or whoever's the nurse who's there bringing you flowers. Um, and she said, so what's your proudest moment or what is it that you've achieved? So assuming you've you've not yet done it, what is that thing? What is the thing that drives you forward, that keeps you going, that you really want to see manifest, other than your amazing book? <laughs> what? Oh, you're so kind, Paula. I, I tell you, I've thought about this so often. Um, and the reason is that I get pulled into so many different directions. You know, one thing that I do feel very passionate about is the chemicals, the tons and tons of chemicals that we are putting into the soil, into our water. Um, I, I would love to be able to reach audiences with, with a message just for people to understand that it is almost too late and I know that sounds quite dramatic um, and you know the last thing we want is is this doom and gloom message but there is still so much hope um, I would love to see a pollinator corridor like they've done for the elephants um, I think conservation is there's some fantastic conservation elements happening um, all over the world but uh you know, in, in Silent Earth, uh, Dave Golson refers to this, that you need to connect these pockets of pollinator conservation or areas that's been created um, for pollinators. So I would love to see a pollinator corridor that is specifically created in the Western Cape that incorporates, you know, sort of the famous all the way up to, the, you know, Knashvaktor. We've got amazing bee diversity in, in sort of, areas of the Karua um, because I think that that can be incorporated into our tourism in South Africa. There is so much to see and, you know, this is right there by the winelands. So I would love to see, you know, pollinator um, conservation, pollinator corridors and, and get that linked with, with tourist experiences. Um, but yes, I, I think the chemicals is a big thing for me. Um, I, we've just had Halloween and I nearly dressed up as a bottle of Roundup uh, and said, I've been killing, bee, killing bees since 19. Oh, <laughs> are, we, 
Are we allowed to be? Uh, will somebody sue us for this, Paula? Um, well, I, don't know. They, I think it would be nice if they could prove that they weren't killing bees. You know, why do we have to prove that they are? We we can see it. Yes, <laughs> yes it's and, and perhaps not kill on contact, but um, yes, it's you know, uh, we had we had one of these. Um, um, presentations at the pollinator symposium just showing how the, the it was on bumblebees how they're so lethargic they they are so lethargic they're not even completing building their nest they they just have got no energy they're confused when they fly etc etc it's a whole different topic but yes i i'd like to be able to to just if make the public aware um of of how we need these organisms and and it's all bees all bees, all pollinators. And, you know, Paula, if you look at the history, I really, I truly believe there's something spiritual about honeybees. If you look at the history and all these different cultures, there's this spiritual connection with every single culture on this planet. It mm. is the only insect that creates a whole food, a slow food for our enjoyment. The, 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 the challenge is to respect it in such a manner to take just enough and honey heals. This is mm. this is medicine. I mean, medicine comes from botany, right? And these yeah. little insects know this. They collect these nectars. They even self-medicate. So, I mean, we haven't even touched on that yet. <laughs> honey yeah. heals is this sacred commodity that should be respected. And and I just think it's this unbelievable connection between us and and nature. I think the bees are the original medical herbalists. You know, they actually know that that alchemy that by drinking the nectar from certain plants and then taking it back to the hive, working together to produce this incredible honey, that it's medicine. And if, you know, there is an argument about taking honey at all, you know, there's this whole vegan movement and where people are thinking that taking honey is is you know, harming the bees. But if you're taking it sustainably, if you imagine if you had created this incredible healing food, you want to share it. And I really believe the bees are the same. But the key is appreciating it. Just like for our families, you know, if you put all this care and effort into baking some amazing meal, you want to know that it's appreciated. And, and you know, our children come back because they know that the food their mothers cook is nurturing and it is made with love and I think the bees are making the honey with love and when the bees have a relationship with the beekeeper all that love goes into the honey and love heals you know so honey is that sort of certification of of love um you know from the plants the bees everything so you have been so kind. I know you are really busy and we've managed to squeeze in this little time to chat. And I am definitely going to have to have you back because hopefully we will both have some amazing news about honey to share um, by the end of this year. But yes. um, keep that as, as a surprise for people. But um, how can how can listeners track you down? Where can they find you? Um, so we uh, earlier this year we launched, in fact, to coincide with um, World Bee Day and and uh, Chelsea, uh, our website, which is Lion Raw Honey. Um, if you just Google Lion Raw Honey, we're also on Instagram, Lion Raw Honey. Um, yes, and my email is there. You can follow us. Um, I'm not um, 
that active on, on other platforms. Um, but yeah, my email address is both on our website and on Instagram. And yeah, I'd love, love to hear from people from all over the world about their bee stories and their honeys. And um, gee, we've connected with some pretty amazing people. It's, it's really an honor and a privilege, Paula. Um, it's been wonderful also to work with you and all our talks. And yeah, the, the bees keep keep surprising us and keep teaching us that's for sure well and the more you learn the more you realize there is to learn it's just it is a life's work just to scratch the surface isn't it um and i will put all the links um in the show notes and it for those listening it is lion spell l-y-o-n um so i just love lion raw i think that's genius genius name yeah i'm I'm, I'm delighted you know for me the insect obviously with the lions in south africa etc my husband's scottish so it's actually believe it or not a scottish surname but um for me you know i thought the the the, the honeybee for me is is sort of the insect right the roaring lion and lions it just all worked with the name and the player so lion raw uh, raw honey <laughs> yeah no, it's brilliant. and you are a lioness because you're changing the beekeeping world in south africa and your recent recent talk won the the best talk didn't it the pollinators um congress yes, well it, it's yeah for the for that session for the, the there's the best speaker award for that session um which i i still can't believe i'm not quite convinced that i was but i think i do was I, 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 were, I did present it um, with with a bit of humor and um, but yeah it was it was a great honor and unbelievable people I've just learned so my mind is still full um, yeah so that was a great privilege and I loved it and I was very surprised by that to be honest oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well you have yeah. a great message to share and and people are ready to hear it now so it's wonderful thank you so Paula. thank you very very much and i look forward to our next meeting which hopefully won't be too too far away now and um thank you very much natasha thank you paula it's been wonderful and i love listening to your podcast really keep it up it's fantastic work thank oh, you bless you all right bye for now i love that you've been listening to my podcast thank you so much I am delighted to have the wonderful Beebrook helping me with editing and um, producing this podcast. So if you've enjoyed it, do share it around and connect with me on social media, Instagram, LinkedIn and my website. So thank you very much and bye for now. You have to become yourself. Join us Open next time on heart. Creating a Buzz Open About Health heart. podcast with Paula Carnell. Buzz you later.